As was mentioned previously, and certainly worthwhile to note again how thankful we each can be to assemble, and it's our sincere and only desire to worship God in spirit and in truth in the banner of John 4, verse 24. It is that worship that's pleasing unto God. It's that worship that's most beneficial unto us. And in fact, that leads to the title, as Brother Jonathan mentioned earlier, and you also have seen it in the bulletin, but an effective church. And the text that was just read a moment ago, as Jeremy read that for us from Colossians chapter 1, will direct us to some rather sincere and very profound questions for us to consider even this morning. As usual, it seems a few words of introduction might well be in order, and I would invite you to at least think with me about some of these ideas. I suppose it's fair to say that effectiveness is something that is a reasonably strong element that's desired by all of us, whether it be in the home, on the job site, as a friend or neighbor, we wish to be a person that's effective. We like to do well whatever we strive to do, at least most individuals. Should it be any different in the church? The Pippin congregation has been bountifully blessed in many ways, but as we think about the opportunity presented to us, the effort that we have put forth, that simply places us in a few questions about effectiveness. Can we be even more effective? Can we be even better stewards of what God has set before us? The closing verse to Ephesians chapter 3 still reads, Unto Him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. That particular passage is in some sense an anthem that called the church in Ephesus to understand the greatness and the grandeur of Christ. Beginning in verse 17, just a few verses earlier, they had been told that although one may not be able to comprehend the length, breadth, depth, and height of the love of God because it passes understanding, nonetheless, we are admonished just as they were to be a congregation, a church that magnifies, glorifies, and exalts God in all the ways He has commanded. That's what will make us effective. But thankfully, there are some things, guidelines if you please, that have been stated that might help us. And that, in fact, is the subject of the lesson this morning. An effective church. As we move through this study, of course, several questions might be asked. Is the Pippin congregation effective at this? And perhaps even more to the point, am I effective in my role as a part of what we study? Maybe we as a congregation are effective, but could I do more of my part in it? Could I, in fact, have a larger role to play in assisting the work of the Lord at this place? As we begin to look at these, we shall look at several occurrences in the Bible that identifies the matter of effectiveness, and I might suggest we begin here. I think we all would have guessed this surely must be the central, foundational, most basic consideration in terms of making any effective church. The Lord Jesus Christ must be the focus, the center wheel, the hub, if you please, of that which we do and that which we lift high. Let's focus on that topic for the next few moments. It was this very passage that Jeremy read just a moment ago. I would invite you to read it with me again. Colossians chapter 1, and let's begin in verse 14. As the Apostle Paul directed these comments to the church in Colossae, he began by saying, in whom we have redemption through His blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by Him were all things created, that are in heaven and that are in earth, 
visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and by Him all things consist. And He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He might have the preeminence. It's easy to appreciate the one of whom we speak. In verse 14, the very one through whose blood you and I enjoy forgiveness. Verses 15 and 16, the very one who was the central figure in the creation of this entire universe and everything in it. Verse number 17, the one before whom all things consist is the same one, verse 18, who reigns as head of the church. No wonder then we must begin by appreciating that if we are to be an effective church, the Lord Jesus Christ must be the central figure. It is not that we do things for our personal name. It's not that I do things because I want to be honored and glorified. And we as a congregation mustn't be motivated by that either. Our charge and challenge is to realize it's through Christ all things consist. If we're effective, we'll lift high His will. We'll lift high the character of what He commanded and we will strive to be made in His image as thoroughly and as completely as possible. For those reasons, look at some of these activities. Two chapters later in that same book, Colossians 3.17, the inspired writer would say, "...and whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks unto God and the Father by Him." The church in Colossae in many ways was a complementary one in the New Testament, meaning Paul had many good things to say about them. Now, it is true they were beginning to veer off into some rather strange and unwholesome doctrines. But nonetheless, they were told, whatever you do in word or deed, make sure that it is under the banner of authority of Christ and make sure then that it is a pleasing and approved by Him. The Pippin congregation must have that as our central and initial consideration. The desire not to make a name for ourselves. It might well be important here to recollect that rather interesting scene in Genesis chapter 11. There we find a group of people, talented, absolutely. Eager, without question. Capable, certainly. But what did they do with their talents? What did they do with their abilities? They started building a tower to reach into heaven and God came down and confused their language because they weren't using their abilities in the way that in fact God found pleasing. He confounded their language at the famous Tower of Babel. We don't, we don't wish God to come and confound our language. We want to meet His approval and so that He'll bless us even more thoroughly and powerfully. An effective church thus, you might notice, leads us to this famous passage that is maybe the premier example of Paul. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, as the Apostle Paul addressed the church in Corinth, we might again notice a church with problems, oh yes. A church, however, with marvelous potential, without doubt. But yet it was to him that as Paul entered into this city, this one known for its thinking, its reasoning, its human capabilities. Paul said, And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. 
the only anthem that Paul wished to praise and the only nature that he wished to set before them was the unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ. Human thinking was of no help. Human philosophy, human sophistry, human wisdom was the very thing he mentioned two verses later. In verses 3, 4, and 5, he said, "...that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God." And that's what the Pippin Church of Christ, if we are to be effective, must also do. Having our faith standing not in men's thinking, but of course in what God has revealed and in the power of what He has set forth. Maybe one final thought would in fact be these passages. As you and I contemplate then the centerpiece of Jesus, it's also fair to say that that also should be true of your life and mine individually. In this same Colossian letter, Colossians 2.3, you're complete in Christ. All the treasures of knowledge and wisdom are hid in Him. That means daily, on a daily basis, when we give questions about what we speak and say, that should be guided by what He has revealed. Where we go and the kind of friend we are and the kind of things that we choose to engage in, all of those things, if we're to be complete, must be guided by the things Jesus has revealed. Centered in Christ. No wonder Paul could say in Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless I live yet. Tis not I, but Christ liveth in me. For the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. The nobility of Paul, the opportunity that was his and how he wished to only know Jesus. That's why here during our Bible classes and the particular sermons that we consider and the opportunity on a daily basis that we each have, we wish to lift high the banner of Christ for He is the captain of our salvation, Hebrews 2 verse number 10. However, that was only beginning because what follows maybe is this. To respect in the proper way the authority of the Word of God. It goes without saying that authority is an exceedingly important matter, isn't it? What determines what we do? That it all based upon the matter of authority, isn't it? What is the authority to which we turn? Is it the creeds that men have written? Is it the particular doctrines and documents that men have chosen to write through the centuries? And we might be well to say that there have been some documents that have affected the human family in a tremendous way. Our students in history are called upon to study some of those documents. The famous Magna Carta, our own Declaration of Independence, the character and nature of various religious documents have even been noteworthy. The writings of Augustine, the writings of several others more recently. There have been those that have shined a light of significance on the writings of Alexander Campbell. May you and I, though, pause to say this. Our interest in terms of respecting proper authority must begin and end with the Word of God. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works." the unceasing reminder of 2 Timothy 3, beginning in verse 16. As Paul directed those words to Timothy, he in fact urged him to give sole consideration in his preaching to those matters of the Word. Preach the Word. 
be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. For the time will come, Paul wrote, when they will not endure sound doctrine. But after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and be turned into fables. But watch thou in all things, do the work of an evangelist. And all that takes us through verse 5 of 2 Timothy 4. As the admonition was given to preach the Word, the same message needful 20 centuries ago is just as needful now. No church, no group of people, no organization can be effective as a church unless they respect properly the authority of the Bible. Jesus, in fact, asked it this way in Mark chapter 11. It was on that occasion when there were some who came before Him, and they asked Him a question. In the very nature of that chapter, Jesus, you may remember, had overturned the money changers' tables. He had, in fact, driven out the animals that they were using to encumber the work there in the temple area. They had the nerve to come to Him and say, Where did you get the authority to do this? Jesus said, I have a question for you too. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or of men? And right there we have the only two sources of authority religiously. Anything is either of men or it's from heaven. There is no middle ground. There is no third option. And we remember that they, of course, were stumped. For they reasoned, if they said from heaven, He's going to say, Why then did you not believe Him? However, they reasoned, if we say of men, all the people are going to jump on us because they consider John a prophet. And so they told Jesus, We cannot tell. Jesus said, Neither tell I you by what authority I do these things. And there we find the only two potential characterizations of authority. We at the Pippin congregation, of course, wish to rest thoroughly and fully upon the authority vested in the Scriptures and to find in that that which is, of course, pleasing unto God. As you can well tell, the very last statement on that reminds us of the perfection of the Bible. Perfect, isn't it? When that which is perfect is come... You and I have been reminded that this perfection, I think it jumped too. This perfection that we find inherent in the Scriptures is highlighted as you and I give thought to what a blessing it is to give thought to the Word of God. Perfection is something that you and I appreciate because in many ways we so often do not find it. Is there a perfect husband in the house? Is there a perfect wife in the house? Is there a perfect employee or a perfect employer amongst the group today? I find every reason to say the answer is bound to be no. None of us do everything in life as perfect as we would wish. We strive for it. We yearn for it. We work toward that goal and end. But have you ever thought that perhaps at this moment resting in your lap, is a perfect book. Not a mistake in it. Absolute perfection in every regard. And this must then be the sole source of our authority if we are to be an effective church. That effectiveness perhaps seen in some of these verses. John 12 verse 48. He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my word hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same Jesus said, shall judge him at the last day. Isn't that remarkable? All the things that you and I so often give consideration to in this life will have long since passed away by the time the day of judgment arrives. 
but yet this book shall stand supreme. Revelation 20, verses 11 and following tell us that it shall be one of the books opened on that great and final day. And the contents thereof used as a judge for your life in terms of standard and mine. As you can also see on that wall to my left, 2 John, verses 9 through 11 remind us in no uncertain terms not to go beyond the doctrine of what's revealed. If we do, John said, we do not have Christ. Isn't that interesting? And isn't it also severe? To think that if I make up my own rules, my own laws, my own ideas, and try to bind that on others, I have stepped beyond the bounds of that which is right. And as such, I no longer have fellowship with Christ either. We have an absolute boundary, and we must not go beyond it. Respect for this book is by far the main problem of the religious world. Men want their way. They want their preferences. They want their conveniences when all the while God has said the only thing He will accept. The job for you and for me in love is to receive it and to submit to it. That nature of obedience takes us to one of those final verses. In an unforgettable way, didn't Jesus say, Sanctify them through thy truth, thy word is truth. And with that, we notice two characteristics of an effective church have been listed. Let's look at a third one. In addition to this consideration of authority, and in addition to placing Jesus, of course, in the central place, I might ask, leadership. Leadership is always vital in every realm of God's organizations. He has described in His book, Leadership at the Home. We remember how strongly and how often the Bible has made reference to the husband being the head of the wife, the characteristics associated with a godly family. But might we notice the church? Has God spoken about the leadership in the church and what must be true if that leadership is to be appropriate and thus if that church is to be effective? We all realize that the New Testament is by no means silent on that point. Here are just a few thoughts. It has been the observation, I'm sure, of many of us that the world so often looks upon the leadership of the church very differently than the way that the New Testament identifies it. After all, there are individuals in this world who clearly have been successful. They've risen to high stature in the medical field. Maybe they're a doctor. Maybe they're otherwise recognized as a lawyer or some other person of high reputation. And so the temptation for many has been, well, surely if that individual has been that successful in these other realms of life, he'd make a good elder. That isn't necessarily so. In fact, there are qualifications set forth in the Word of God that identify that very powerful aspect of leadership involved in being an elder. In fact, 22 qualifications are listed in Titus chapter 1 and 1 Timothy chapter 3. And thus, it's a very serious matter, isn't it, to think about what's involved in being an elder. It goes without saying those things are in the Word of God because that's what's involved in part in making an effective church. To have leaders who have proper vision... And I don't mean just the ability to see with the physical eye, but they have the vision to understand what the church is about, how to carry it out, and how to use the talents of those beneath their leadership in such a way that it truly is a blessing to the kingdom of God. 
Leadership is very vital in every realm of life, isn't it? And it's no different in the church. There at the bottom of that slide, you'll notice a few passages that speak briefly. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, there's a discussion made there about elders. And some things stated about them very briefly are these. Those elders are not to, in fact, lord it over the flock. They're not tyrants. They're not to, in fact, behave in a way like tyrancy. But rather, they are to appreciate the great blessing that's theirs and to understand that their position in that is to, of course, lead by example first and foremost, but to do so in such a way to appreciate the talents and in love to lead others toward heaven. They watch for our souls, Hebrews 13, 17. As they watch for our souls, they themselves are beneath the chief shepherd. They realize they aren't on their own, but rather they strive to do what God would have them to do. For those reasons, look at these last statements that are one central feature, at least a powerful part of the work of the elder. They are charged in more than one verse to feed the flock. As they are concerned about your soul and mine, and as they watch over the activities of this church, and as they understand even from youth to older in age how vital each individual is, the fact that that person is going to stand before God in judgment and that they need to ensure as much as possible that what is done is for the benefit spiritually of all those present. Feed the flock. You'll notice in Acts 20 verses 28 to 32 to draw attention specifically to that set of verses. That seems so appropriate to our discussion for this reason. On that occasion, Paul was addressing the elders of the church in Ephesus. Here were a group of men. We aren't told how many of them there were, but there were the elders from the church in Ephesus. They had traveled to meet Paul because Paul wasn't able to go to where they were at that time. They met Paul at Miletus, and they entered into a very spirited discussion with him. Spirited not in a way of disagreement, but spirited because of the fact they were heartbroken. For they knew Paul was headed to Jerusalem and they'd never see his face again. As a part of that discussion, virtually with a tear in his eye, Paul said, Brethren, verse number 28, he commended them to a study of the Word of God. He commended them to uphold the greatness of the church because Christ purchased it with His blood. Did He not say, I commend you to God and to the Word of His grace, who is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all them that are sanctified? It is significant that the final remarks Paul had to leave with those elders were, Men, give yourself to that book and feed the flock with it. Paul said, I cried. I was with you day and night for three years. And you learned the necessity of that word. Can you and I not see then today, though we may be 20 centuries later, how vital it is for leadership to focus on the word? to make sure that that's what is preached and taught, to make sure that's the central fact of what's in the classroom, and to make sure that that's what's held high in every regard. When you and I give thought to that aspect of the Word of God, you'll notice that that Word and the highlight to it, the feature of that leadership also, of course, does this. That leads us to say that quite often in the books of First and Second Timothy and Titus, 
Paul asserts the need to oppose that which is erroneous. That which is in false doctrine must not be allowed to germinate. For just like leaven will ultimately bring about the rising of the bread and fulfill all of what's there, so too false doctrine. It can come in so innocently, it can come in so secretly, but after a while you see it begins to influence others. And finally, there are others that begin to question what is the sacred truths of the Bible. And soon, that church that was once so strong has lapsed into apostasy. May it never be so at Pippin. Because for one part, may we each be devoted to the Word, but may our leadership and strength always strive to ensure that error is opposed every way it appears. That nature of opposition of error reminds us of some names that Paul called in these books. Standing now for over 20 centuries in the written Word of God are names of individuals that were false teachers. Hymenaeus, Philologus, Alexander, and others. These have continued through this day reminding us that we too must stand against it in every way it appears. The final point of that section of the lesson, as you can see, is leadership must always, of course, have that vision spoken of in Proverbs 29. Does it not say there that where there is no vision, the people perish? As long as we have leadership with strength and the proper spiritual vision, we, of course, will be led correctly because they'll understand the worth of a soul and they'll understand the value and needfulness of the leadership that only the Word of God through them can provide. As we come to the next element in the lesson, another thing that makes a church effective is a very clear recognition of how worthy, how valuable a soul is, concerned with souls. Isn't it amazing how at times, I suppose, it's easy for a congregation, a church, to find its focus given to other things, to make the best-looking parking lot, to have the best-looking facade on the outside of the building, to have the best-looking carpet, to make sure the pews are all colored the right way and everything's coordinated as needful. I'm not in any way saying that doesn't have its proper place in discussion. But the church was set forth to save souls. And only the blood of Christ can do that. And it's safe to say that you and I could be a congregation, a congregation might exist that would have all those things I mentioned and still the vast majority in it could be lost. That was exactly what seemingly had occurred to the church in Laodicea, isn't it? We remember the passage so well in Revelation 3, beginning in verse 14. Jesus directly addressed the church at Laodicea. And if I may paraphrase some of what He said to them, this is what He said. He pointed out to them that you think that you have no need of anything. They thought they were self-sufficient. They thought that all was well. However, he said, you don't realize you're poor, miserable, wretched, blind, and naked. You are completely without the blessings that you think that you've got. Think again what that suggests. Here was a church that thought everything was fine. Monetarily, they were in good shape. Financially, they had no troubles. Although many in that day and time, as we perhaps appreciate, suffered greatly, that church was blessed financially. That sense of independence, though, led them to think they didn't need even Jesus. And so they seemingly weren't concerned with the souls of individuals. 
Jesus said, you need to repent and do the first works. That's what He told them. You need to repent and come back to a recognition of how needful you are of the Christ. It sounds a lot like Jesus' own words in John 15, 5, doesn't it? Without me, you can do nothing. The church in Laodicea needed to learn that. We at Pippin, of course, need to also keep that in our mind as we recognize how needful it is to give thought to the preciousness of the souls in this building. There are those here, faithful Christians, in the church it admonished to edify. We need to be sure to do those things that help encourage you to stay faithful. There are youngsters here. We look forward to the day if God allows time to stand when they can confess their Lord and be baptized. We need to make sure to be teaching them. Their classrooms are filled with the doctrine of God so that they come to understand that the nonsense so often taught in universities and other places is exactly that. And by the same token, they see it lived, gospel truth, in the lives of their parents, grandparents, and others. Our first concern, then, is we think about the souls of ourselves and those we love. But that love also quickly extends to those who are yet are not Christians, those who haven't obeyed the gospel. Paul did say in Romans 10, verse 18, about that very thing, they have not all obeyed the gospel. No wonder then Jesus with the nail-pierced hand pointed to a world and said, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. Those words are still as meaningful and as truthful, aren't they? Our concern then emanates and finds that that message won't often be received the way we'd hope. Many may slam the door in your face. They may say, I don't want to talk about that. They, in fact, in fact, may even be aggressive and militant against us. That, however, simply means that we'll pray for them and hope that we'll have another opportunity. Concerned about souls takes us to that passage. Perhaps Jesus Himself said it best in Mark chapter 8. What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? The value and worth of that single soul... That does motivate us at the Pippin congregation. It motivates us individually. And you might notice that that brings us to the last point of the lesson this morning. These four things so far are critical planks in making an effective church. It seemed to me important in light of the Corinthian epistles to add one more. I'm not saying this list today is exhaustive. But it does seem that it does touch upon all the major elements. But this too is one that has missed the mark in many arenas throughout the last century at least. There is a world of difference between the commands of God and the opinions of man. And that also is true of even me or it's true of even of other noted scholar, whoever that may be. That difference has led to so many issues we, in fact, went through a series of studies a couple of years ago on Wednesday evening in which we looked in detail at the Restoration Movement. And I think as we each learned so readily, one of the matters that led to such division, that led to such problems, that led to such difficulties, was when ideas of men were elevated to the stature of Scripture. And thus that was used to divide fellowship. You can list many of those thoughts yourself. Having a classroom 
having a kitchen at the church building, having running water present, and on and on and on the list goes, where things were used to divide brethren when the Bible has not said anything about those things inherently being wrong. And the fact is, any time then that you and I use those kind of thoughts and then use that to divide brethren, we put ourselves under the same condemnation of Titus 3 verse 10. Is it any wonder then we need to lift high what the Lord has taught and in love appreciate all who are in fellowship with us and those that aren't to seek to understand that nature and correct any misgivings that are in fact present. Just a few verses in passing will lead us to the book of Romans on the one hand and the Corinthian epistles on the other. You may recall Paul encountered this very matter. There were those who thought eating of meats was appropriate. There were those who thought it wasn't. In Romans 14, Paul said, as he encouraged all of them to realize there is some need for understanding here. Paul said each one was accepted because God hadn't said anything about it. When in fact that was done in a religious sense, when that was done in an improper way, Paul would encourage and admonish and teach. But when it was a matter of opinion, that must not be used to divide the cause of the body of Christ. Human opinion so often can appear so strong, can it? We must ever realize, though, it still doesn't match the authority of the Bible. It is for those reasons at the bottom of that slide. You can notice then that the words of Christ challenge us to close the lesson like this. I saved all of that for this particular slide. As we think about the congregation here at Pippin, and as we think about maybe other sister congregations in the vicinity and neighborhood, and we're so thankful for every faithful congregation in the Lord. But we've learned today, if a church is to be effective, Christ Jesus must be its center. The centerpiece of its doctrine, the centerpiece of its existence, the centerpiece of all it ever hopes to be. But beyond that, we've learned it also has to respect the authority of Christ invested in the Scripture. Thus saith the Lord must be its motto. We also have learned the need for strong leadership with vision for what is scriptural and, of course, religious as taught in the Bible. In the fourth place, we've reminded ourselves of that impressive concern that must be exhibited for the souls of individuals, both its membership and those that are not. And finally, to understand that distinction between opinion and command. Today, as we are thankful for the blessings of this congregation, but we look forward to being even stronger in the days and the months that lie ahead of us, maybe we have been reminded today of some of the features inherent in making us even more effective than what we currently are. At this point, might we pause to ask, all of that leads us to appreciate being a Christian is so vital. Are you a faithful Christian? Have you been washed in the blood of the Lamb, Revelation 7, 14, and as such are you walking faithfully day by day? If not, there could be one of two potential problems. Maybe you've never become a Christian to start with. There shall never be a better day than this one, the 17th of February, 2013. And if we could be of assistance to you, we'd be honored to do that. That plan of salvation is given in simplicity. You need to hear the truth of God. You need to believe Jesus to be the Son of God and do so with all your heart. You furthermore are called upon to repent 
having a change of mind that results in a change of action relative to the sinful activities of your former life. You need to confess audibly the fact that Jesus is the Son of God and then be baptized simply, humbly, and submissively for the forgiveness of your sins. If you have begun that walk with the Master, but for one reason or another, maybe as a part of one or more of these, things have slipped. You've become too focused on self, unconcerned with others. You've given little, if any, attention to the teaching of the Bible. Maybe, in fact, the fact that Jesus is the Lord has meant very little to you. Come back to that first love today. Jesus will make of you what He would wish you to be if you will let Him. And today, if we could be of assistance in praying on your behalf, why not today? Why not even now while together we stand and while we sing?